everybody. Welcome back to the Fear and Trembling podcast. Gathered around the table as per our usual. I am uh, Aaron Vanderveen. I'm the campus pastor at Watershed here at Hardawike. Next to me, I have... It might help if I actually unmute you. Oh, okay. <laughs> that was the most We're intelligent start- thing I've said all day. Man. <laughs> yeah, that was, it was brilliant. It was <laughs> I, Bill from Celebration still. <laughs> I'm JB with Fusion. I'm Darwin, the executive pastor. All right. <laughs> Everyone is unmuted. I, okay. Good. It's a good thing we're talking about grace today. I, yeah, yeah. That <laughs> was an intentional illustration. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. right. Um, grace, you may just mute me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, today, I mean, we don't normally lean into the day we're actually recording and what day and time it is, but uh, I think it's fitting as we're getting ready to talk about Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, that, and this wasn't planned. Um uh, <laughs> That we are recording on Reformation Day. It um, wasn't planned by us. It wasn't. Oh, so was it the oh. was it the Holy <laughs> Ghost? <gasps> oh, since Reformation Day is also Halloween. Wait, it's yeah. Halloween. It's Halloween. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know today was Halloween. I thought today was Reformation Day. Right. My, my kids haven't been reminding me that in right. the last several. Yeah. Maybe you've had too much candy to be focused. That's right. your that's, problem. That's a consistent sugar rush. <laughs> but the fact that yeah, what what was key to Reformation Day and the Reformation ultimately comes to what we're talking about today. So, yeah. Bill, yeah. you're uh, you're leading us today. So uh, yeah, sure. This Take is part way. of the um, we've done a series around the table here about. Uh, uh, what great books have influenced us? And this is a key book in my life. It was interesting. As a pastor who had given his life to Christ, been thoroughly trained in reformational studies, I was in midlife and began to really experience what I call now a gospel renaissance through this book. Uh, I believed in the doctrines of grace. Philip Yancey helped me connect to the doctrines of grace in a whole new way. And so I wanted to begin this with just some insight into the guy. Let me tell you a bit about um, Philip Yancey. He was born in Atlanta, Georgia, and grew up in an independent fundamental-type church and eventually stepped away from the religion he'd learned there. He writes about that in his 2001 book, Soul Survivor, How My Faith Survived the Church. Interesting Interesting book and a great example of a different way to deconstruct. And and doesn't he too? I mean, in 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 our book today, yeah. he he leans into some of those things sure. too, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. He he turned away from the faith of his origins in order to come to grace yeah. and the gospel. It's a great great story. By 1971, he was writing for Campus Life magazine, and then for 30 years, wrote for Christianity Today. He's now a freelance writer, written, sold over 15 million books. Surreal impact. Listen to this quotation. I write books for myself. I am a pilgrim recovering from a bad church upbringing. I feel overwhelming gratitude that I can make a living writing about the questions that most interest me. My books are a process of exploration and investigation of things I wonder about and worry about. Listen to some of these book titles, Fearfully and Wonderfully Made with Dr. Paul Brand, the world's leading leprosy doctor. He later write about The Gift of Pain with that same doctor, 
a book called Disappointment with God from 1988, The Jesus I Never Knew in 1995, The Church, Why Bother in 2001. He asks some tough questions, and he's a tough guy. I needed to pass this on specifically for Darwin. In 2007, he completed a life goal of climbing all of Colorado's 14,000 peaks, and he climbed three of them after he'd suffered a broken neck in an auto accident. Wow. Wow. So Mm. quite the fella. Um, And this book was one that has just been very influential, widely recognized. And all of us have talked around the table already. Philip Yancey is a storyteller. So don't think, okay, deep, thick, uh, systematic theology. He draws you into stories. And I want to ask us all about stories from the book that we might want to keep and think about. I'll do that by starting with how he opens the book. This will give you a flavor. He collects a story uh, in my book, The Jesus I Never Knew, a true story that long afterward continued to haunt me. I heard it from a friend who worked with a down and out in Chicago. Here it is. A prostitute came to me in wretched wretched straits, homeless, sick, unable to buy food for her two-year-old daughter. Through sobs and tears, she told me she had been renting out her daughter, two years old, to men interested in kinky sex. She made more renting out her daughter for an hour than she could earn on her own in a night. She had to do it, she said, to support her own drug habit. I could hardly bear hearing her sordid story. For one thing, it made me legally liable. I'm required to report cases of child abuse. I had no idea what to say to this woman. At last, I asked if she had ever thought of going to a church for help. I will never forget the look of pure, naive shock that crossed her face. Church, she said. Why would I ever go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They would just make me feel worse. And from there, he begins to unpack life, the church, grace, and what it means. He grips you with stories. What do you think, guys? Yeah, I I mean, I remember. I don't remember when I last read this book. Yeah. Yeah. I forgot that he just came out swinging, you know, <laughs> um, and again, anytime somebody mentioned, mentioned Chicago, you know, growing it's, up it's in the South Chicago yeah. suburbs, I'm like, all right, cool. You got me. And then he mentions Michigan throughout, you know, yep. like, wow, yes. Um, but man, when I read that, I just, I had to stop again, just gripped by uh, wow, on, on his first know. page. Right. And, and not only the story of what brought this woman to that that extent of darkness and hopelessness and lostness but then here's the whole you know where are we going is the church why why the church and and yeah. he does a masterful job i think of actually bringing back that quote throughout the rest of the book too you know it be, it becomes really that that wrestling question of what will the church be why why would i go there yeah um, they're just going to make me feel worse Right. And, um, and I think as I look around the people that I engage with and, and, and share life with of going, right. A lot of times people know what they're dealing with and, and a lot of life is running away from some of the pain, trying to find 
ways to fill in the gaps of some of that lostness, the hopelessness, um, to try to find meaning when they're not feeling it, right? Yeah, and, yeah. And when you can actually get in relationship and share those, you know, hear those honest stories, um, at least from my friends, you know, and it's, yeah, it just touches in a different way of going, if the church is supposed to be the this representative of Jesus and life, the place where this friend of sinners, Jesus, um, so yeah, I it I had to put it down. Yeah, some of the people who back. most run to Jesus find themselves running away from his people. I was yeah, and I was just as you were talking, just the just an observation of the power of story. Oh yeah. And because you were you were saying just previously that you understood the doctrines of grace, <laughs> but this book filled with stories helped you understand grace on a deeper level. Like, yeah. Stories help get things from our mind to the heart. You, know? right. you begin to see your yeah. face yeah, um, or the face of those you love or trying to care for. Yeah, it, it lands it. And uh, anyway, just observation. But yeah. favorite, favorite story from the book? Well, favorite so, story. I, I, there were a lot oh, of stories. Yeah. Oh, there, there <laughs> I mean, I kind of, I kind of liked them all. I mean, I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't really have a favorite. Um, I, I was, I, I liked Babette's Feast. Yeah, and I remember yeah, hearing that, cool. and I think I think we even watched in seminary Babette's Feast. There was oh, like man. a black and white, yeah, uh, filmed version of Babette's. Well, I think it was black and white, and I remember watching. I'm like, wait a second, and then there was kind of like this parallel of a of a bride in Boston. Uh, there was a story yeah. of a bride in Boston who yep. was, whose husband left her, or fiance. Two, yeah, fiance um, left fiance, her. And, yeah. Instead of canceling and losing her deposit, she ended up having the wedding reception and, and going to the streets and inviting, you know, all the down and outers of, yeah. of Boston to have this uh, incredibly fancy dinner. And it, I don't know, it, it kind of like brought, I don't know, that was that was a compelling piece yeah, that had these parallels it, it touches to scriptures, right? <laughs> in your past. And he, he refers to a lot of books a and a lot of movies and just keeps bringing these things back to you, opens yeah. them up. Yeah, I think one of the, one of the stories that got me was when he was talking about the loopholes of of oh, grace and yeah, how yeah. people can use them. Um, I'll read a couple paragraphs, but it was a, a friend of his, Daniel, who was uh, considering leaving his wife and his family. And, well, God's just going to forgive me, right? right. It, that sort of that mentality yep. that comes. And, I mean, this this book's we've, – we've talked some about grace with Brennan Manning mm-hmm. and uh, the – um, the ragamuffin gospel a couple uh, podcasts ago, but uh, yeah, it just continues to pick into, okay, so one of the downfalls with grace is, can you take this for granted, right? Yeah. Can you? And so uh, he, he basically said, you know, he asked him, so what should I do? And what do you, what do you think? And he said, here's what I told my friend Daniel in a nutshell. Can God forgive you? Of course, you know, the Bible, God uses murderers, adulterers, for goodness sake, a couple of scoundrels named Peter and Paul led the New Testament church. Forgiveness is our problem, not God's. What we have to go through to commit sin distances us from God. We change in the very act of rebellion. And there's no guarantee we'll ever come back. So you ask me about forgiveness now, but will you even want it later, especially if it involves repentance Several months after our conversation, Daniel made his choice and left his family. 
I've yet to see evidence of repentance. Now he tends to rationalize his decisions as a way of escaping an unhappy marriage, right? Don't we all rationalize those decisions? He's branded most of his former friends too narrow-minded and judgmental. That's the easy easy way out. Blame others, right? And looks instead for people who celebrate his newfound liberation. To me, though, Daniel does not seem very liberated. The price of, quote, freedom has meant turning his back on those who cared about him most. He also tells me God is not a part of his life right now. Quote, maybe later, he says. And then uh, he finishes, man, God took a great risk by announcing forgiveness in advance. And the scandal of grace involves a transfer of that risk to us. And it was like, oh, but, you know, I, it hit me because have I not had that conversation in my own mind? Yeah. You know, like, well, God will forgive, right? And grace. But when we don't realize the impact of that on others, I mean, he doesn't even really talk about the impact of what will that mean for your wife, for your kids? What will that mean? You're right. Um, just the sole impact on your on yourself yeah. and what you have to do to rationalize it. Um, so, yeah, that was a just because I appreciated his loopholes chapter because in it he really engages a little bit of the sanctification aspect of of grace and justify like that double mm-hmm. grace that John Calvin would talk about that we're yeah. fully justified, fully sanctified, and yet we're getting used to being justified and we're letting Living sanctification yeah. work in work us. In us. <laughs> so yeah. yeah. Uh, the loophole thing. What other stories struck y'all? Anything stand out? I thought the the story that Aaron mentioned was was intriguing on the loophole one because I think that's really the only time I remember him really wrestling with the whole idea of repentance. Yeah. Um okay. know, and 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 so what struck me there is that that grace is a posture and a way of being. Forgiveness is sure. is an act, so to speak, yeah. that can only come about because of grace. But where does where does repentance fit into that? Sure. And and that was kind of for me that the missing element in some of the stories is like, and maybe it was there and it was implied. But at, at times it felt like, you know, he people were met with grace and forgiveness, but there didn't appear to be any repentance flowing from that. And yeah, I, I, re- I wrestled with that. And he, yeah. use, he uses and, an Im- illustration of going, yeah, when I think at the beginning of that chapter of going, yeah. the grace can be received with an empty hand. Right. But if your hands are full, it's really hard received. to receive yeah. that grace that's... Yeah. That's there. I, I thought for it was us. interesting too, because I think in the, the loophole chapter, he's like trying to address that reality. Right. And I think he even said, and I don't have the quote in front of me, sure. but he said, I, I, and again, he wrote this late 90s. Right. Yeah. right. So take that in context. Yeah. Um, where we were probably closer to our legalism as a church <laughs> than we are today. And he, but he even said, he said something along the lines of, I'm paraphrasing, I hesitate emphasizing or are talking against legalism when it seems our culture is going in the other way. Uh, There was some quote about, about that. Um, Fast forward 30 years later, almost 30 years later. And I think we feel that tension. Yeah. Maybe. Um, Yeah. Cause we're living in different times. 
Yeah. Um, but it's yeah. interesting. One of the thoughts I brought to the table for this morning is that it is a book that was written in 1997. Right. But doesn't it feel fresh? Yes. Doesn't it speak to <laughs> I things? I was struck I by mean, that. <laughs> I mean, yeah. how do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it. we were talking a little bit beforehand, um, before we started the podcast, and I just go, it, it seems like the world he's talking about has become, has more color. Like, he was talking <laughs> yeah. about it in black and white. And like, now, it hasn't and now we're quite it arrived. In color. <laughs> yeah. And now it's definitely arrived. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, um, it, and again, I, it makes me just be reminded of the fact that grace it continues to be at the center and heart of who we're to be as the church, what God's story is in Christ, and it will always be a relevant yeah. It will always be a relevant conversation. Yeah. The relevant conversation. Right. Yeah, and I, I appreciate it and as he even even though it's dated, you know, talking about his own church and, and upbringing, he though he had issues with it, he he engaged them in a really constructive manner. He 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 gave them the benefit of the doubt as um, as he's addressing them um, and the legalism that he grew up with, and I think that's really important. That that part of what grace does is it allows us, it calls us, I should say, or summons us to engage others from a particular term we like to use, posture. That, that begins by listening and begins by trying to understand where someone is coming from before rushing in for the critique sure. or the discussion. And and one of the things that has struck me over the last couple years, really, um, even in our culture and probably in our church, is that people um, where we might think there's disagreement – um, we're actually operating with very radically different understandings of the world in which we live. And that just by rushing into critique without understanding that is is really problematic. And and that's why grace is so important. Yeah, we we think we're disagreeing on issues, but there's something deeper. Much deeper. Uh, we're differing in postures. And Yancey remains a believer and a churchgoer. And right. deeply involved in his church, he can speak about the church he grew up in. And um, I'll say, read this from his website. Yancey jokes today about being in recovery from a toxic church. Of course, there were good qualities too. Right. If a neighbor's house burned down, the congregation would rally round and show charity. If that is the house belonged to a white person, mm-hmm. I grew up confused by the contradictions. But he didn't reject the whole thing because of those contradictions. He pressed deeper and came to a, a life-changing vision, both of the church and of grace. It's it, interesting. He could find things in there to appreciate even as he moved on. But even as we think about that and this podcast, sorry for the advertisement, um, is, is that what, what Paul – trembling podcast. Where is that? What, what, Paul, what Paul is calling us to is how do we work out the implications sure. with fear and trembling – and and the idea is that, is that we work out the implications of our salvation um, for before holy God, and and there's tensions and there's things we have to navigate, and and that we do it out of a posture of respect and out of a posture of humility, you know. And that's what I really sensed in his book and his storytelling is is that 
the church as a community is not a perfect institution. Um, we may think we have it together, but we probably don't have it together nearly as well as we think we do. But that, that we're living in attentions of what does it mean to follow Christ faithfully? What's our posture going to be in our society and culture and in this time? Um, and it's interesting that when this was written, the church was very much a um, still a respected part of the community, even when it got it wrong. Correct. Over against other parts yeah. now where the church is seen as part of the problem. And so how do we— how do we live out our faith in a culture in which we are not a um, benefit but greeted as part of the problem? And I, th- I think that leads me to one of my favorite quotes. And we were cool. asked, oh, and, and, yeah, yeah. and favorite chapters. Which and I was, didn't even plan that. Which was yeah. chapter, <laughs> chapter 18, which is Serpent Wisdom. Hmm. Um, begins with this quote. From Martin Luther King Jr., the church is not yes. the master or servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. Mm-hmm. It must be the guide and critic of the state and never its tool. And on page 242, this quote, um, and this just seemed to just resonate with today, but the issues facing society are pivotal. Perhaps a culture war is inevitable, but Christians should use different weapons in fighting wars, the weapons of mercy. In Dorothy Day's wonderful phrase, Jesus declared that we should have one distinguishing mark, not political correctness or moral superiority, but love. Paul added that without love, nothing we do, no miracle of faith, no theological brilliance, no flaming personal sacrifice will avail. Love. And I was just like, uh, amen. I, I, yeah. <laughs> like, uh, wow. He writes that in 1997, and it rings true and yeah. powerful. And and it goes right back to the beginning, the very beginning of the book that you read to us, Mm -hmm. right, is I think that posture of, well, why would I go to them? They're just going to make me feel, right, we're the prop, we're we're not what we're meant to be. But even our culture, though, as a friend of mine shared with me, and I I think he's on track, the understanding of love in the scriptures is a love that meets us and that does, that that changes us, that transforms us over time. Mm-hmm. Where, and that's a, a genuine love. Whereas in contemporary culture, in many um, segments of it, um, love um, is ideological conformity. That unless yeah. you agree with me, you don't love me. Unless you validate what I'm doing, you don't love me. And so, so if even the definition of love that. Um, Yancey appears to be working with it stands in sharp contrast to to a contemporary cultural understanding. Sure. Oh, but I but I think the 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 problem is, um, oftentimes the church hasn't responded in love, and our posture right. has been oh, animosity no, and vitriol, and um, and and I think and I think. This this posture of grace, and of course, we're going to define grace and love according to the scriptures and Jesus mm-hmm. Christ. But that requires so much more faith, right? Um, because I think people are like, "Love, well, no, no, no." You know, we want to be the masters of things, and that requires control. And we, you know, and I think the church falls into that um, love, but then people will just uh, well, uh, we're defining our own. Yeah. sense yeah. of love, yeah. and it, it it moves us to the place where right. love can only be about affirmation. Right. You've got to be like me and affirm me, 
and there's this central movement to that's really motivated out of fear and protection oh yeah you know and i think it's rather than genuinely caring for other people and walking with them and that is is really really difficult Um, it moves us out of our comfort zone it means that our church communities are no longer safe spaces the way that we envision they should be. Or had in the past. Or had or were in the past. They're just not. Yeah, churches yeah. used to be where I go to be with people like me. Right. It's, right. it's not that anymore. It never was. Yeah, but, it's, yeah. it's but, safety redefined. Right. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And one of the keys, I think, as I'm listening into is he, he points out to us, this is on 273, once my view of myself changed, you right. know, like that, yeah. you know, once... W- we can't be, we can't offer to the world then or now right. a different picture if grace hasn't changed yeah. us. Right. You know, he said, then I began to see the church in a different light too. As mm-hmm. a, you know, so there's some of his redemption of the church, yeah. Yeah. you know, mm-hmm. as a community of people thirsty for grace. Right. And that's whether or not we know it, they know it, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and then he right. says, like alcoholics on the path to recovery, we share a mutually acknowledged weakness. Now, I mean, that's going to be always the challenge. Right. Do we, do we, are we willing to be a community that allows for weakness, vulnerability? Again, kind of go into yep. the safety as redefined. Yeah. Um, and then he said, gravity tempts us to be believe we can make it on our own. Grace corrects that error. Yeah. Yeah, we've got to be secure in a love in order to securely love others, even when they disagree or, or are different or yeah, don't affirm us. Because without that security yeah, without in, our, in his love, we become controlling. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating to me, his chapter 13, uh, Grace Healed Eyes. There in 1997, he's speaking to an issue that's very, very contemporary for us. Uh, he talks about his long-term friendship with a guy, Mel White, who I remember from my own seminary times. Mel, at that point, was one of the first people to come out as gay, sexually active, and Christian from within uh, conservative church circles. But it seems to me Philip was navigating this in a way that continues to speak well to, to us. Um, before I read a, a more contemporary quote, what, what did you think of that chapter? Did anything strike you there uh, that you saw would be helpful for our own time? Well, I remember when all that happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and, um, and you know, it was a, an interesting period in, in, um, in church life in the United States. Interesting period of church life in the United States when all that um Yeah, transpired. we were all struggling with what does this mean? But I think the um you know, Yancey's response, again, what does it mean what is our calling to walk with people in their brokenness? Yeah. What is our calling to walk with people who are in um our family's language making unhealthy decisions from our perspective? Um what does it mean to walk with them and, and bring um, the balm of grace to them and to allow them to experience that, even though they may not interpret it in the way that we intend? Um, yeah, to, to go back to an earlier yeah. statement you were making, to bring grace even when we don't see what we're going to yeah. consider repentance. And um, 
And I think that's I mean, I think that's been the calling of the church throughout her history. I don't think she's always worked out very well. <laughs> sure. Um and it's really I think one of the tensions we we face today on as we navigate um the contemporary issues we're facing on any number of fronts is how are we going what is our posture going to be particularly to those whom there might be disagreement with and are we out to win the battle or to win the culture war um unfortunately we'll often we may win a battle but we'll lose the war, the war. yeah um are we out to win a war or are we out to care well for people? And I, I think we have to keep coming back and saying, are we caring well for people? Um, you know, and, and even as um, we move into a season where the culture war seems to be accelerating once again, sure. Um, how do we care well for people in the midst of that is, is really the calling and really the challenge. And those who agree with us, those who disagree with us um, shouldn't understand our posture. I think if if our posture is one of grace and that we're willing to walk into it and and with humility and empathy um, and and understanding and caring well for people, I suspect people on both sides of the culture war will be confused by our presence. That ought to be our goal. <laughs> It may be the fruit, yeah. Well, and yeah. understanding what is our responsibility and what isn't. And if, yeah. and if we take on the other people's repentance as our responsibility, oh, yeah. oh sure. my word, you know, then we become controlling and we got to, that's, that's not our responsibility. My responsibility is to change you. Right. And I think yeah. too often that's been the church's that's danger. thinking. Yeah. You know? Listen to how... Mel on his website, I'm sorry, uh, Philip Yancey responds on his website to this ongoing question because he continues to be a friend. Uh, when people ask me how I can possibly stay friends with a sinner like Mel, I respond by asking how Mel can possibly stay friends with a sinner like me. After all, Jesus had much to say about greed, hypocrisy, pride, and lust, sins that I struggle with. Maybe part of the grace that we've received in extending to others can help make us safe and open. Yeah. Yeah, we work off of a different ground. Yeah. Yep. And we we look at people as image bearers of God. Right. And as fallen image bearers of God. No matter yep. what. It, yep. it, we're all on the same we're all in yep. the same place. Yep. And and if grace has become something in us, you know, as we were talking about two a few minutes ago, of then it's a much easier to extend to another and it's you know, in living in that with them, there's there can be friendship, and you can take the shots that seem like they're coming from all sides because yeah. usually that's what's going to happen. Yeah, right. Um, but uh, there was one thing too. He he said um, in this, and it was from Dos, uh, Dostoyev, uh, Dostoyevsky. Dostoyevsky. <laughs> um, but uh, and he he just talks about how sin makes us abominations, um, but we're still God's pride and joy. All of us in the church need grace-healed eyes to see the potential in others for the same grace that God has so lavishly bestowed on us. And then Dostoevsky, duh, I can't even say his name. <laughs> Sorry, Dostoevsky. There we go. Um, to love a person, he said, 
means to see him as God intended him to be. Mm-hmm. Right? It love being a it will go back to love, right? The love we view in scripture is a love that animates a person, right? Brings people into life. Um doesn't make them a project because you could be we we'd have to be very careful too with what's being well we yeah. see the potential you can quickly make somebody into a project and I'm going to manipulate you into that right potential that I see but it's hey we we see the best in you because yeah. God sees the best in us yeah and also in knowing the worst in us has rescued us I mean so and is making us into what He's already made us in Christ yeah, yeah. so. Having received, that's the key to then being able to give. Let me read this definition that he has of grace on my historic copy. um, It's on page 70. He writes, grace means there's nothing you can do that will make God love us more. No amount of spiritual calisthenics and renunciations, no amount of knowledge gained from seminaries and divinity schools, no amount of crusading on behalf of righteous causes. And grace means there is nothing we can do to make God love us less. No amount of racism or pride or pornography or adultery or even murder. Grace means that God already loves us as much as an infinite God could possibly love. Do you think that works? What? What strikes you in that definition? Nothing we can do to make God love us any more. Nothing we can do to make God love us any less. That's, I think, the what we'll spend the rest of our lives getting used to. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, I know that's my journey. Yeah. Is I still want to prove to God how much he should love me oh. based on how good I can be. Um. And maybe at a different time, it'll be a different story, but that still continues to be my story right now. And I still think God's love is conditional based <laughs> upon how well I do or, you know, um, whether I screwed up the sermon on Sunday or, you know, or, you know, like whether my own secret desires, lusts, passion, you know, like mm-hmm. those those pieces, I, I still am getting used to this thing called grace. Yeah. So I think when I think about our, our desire to um, help people join in a journey of being found in and informed yeah. by Christ, um, I think this hits at the core of it. I mean, I think intellectually, um, theologically, um, the, the quote is perfect. You know, I mean, it just, I mean, in my brain, it makes total sense. And I think for most of the people we serve, it would make sense. They would go, oh, yeah, yeah, I get that. Um, but to take that and to actually have it ooze into the core of your being and and lived out is is really part of what the discipleship process is about. It's about learning to live into that reality. The journey. Um, the journey in that. And it, yeah. and it's a difficult it's a difficult one. Um, part of my story is I was thinking God would love me more because my church was growing and he had to crush that and take me out of ministry to realize I can be loved even when I'm not doing yeah. what I thought was going to make it. And I thought God would love me more if I climbed all the 14ers like Philip Yancey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there you go. If I could only write like yeah. Philip Yancey oh, after I, climbing not, the 14ers. That's, that's, that's like a dream. Um. <laughs> when I think about with this control, right, and 
shame and guilt are such powerful motivators and fear and you know and and this takes those things away right and you know my just a quick story last night you know the kids were kind of misbehaving no yeah just kind of they never (laughs) do that that, (laughs) but not because of your parents but then but then but then i you know and and we we you know we scolded them or whatever and but then i was like oh but love you know i want them to so i said to my daughter you know hey well i got this little thing where i say can i tell you a secret and she knows what that means like i love you so much so uh i say that and then all of a sudden i had this i had this instinct this is a confession where it was like but i don't want her to think she can get away with this stuff so then i felt like i had to explain my love and say well you know we love you because we want what's best for you, you know like i don't know just like just like like there was this instinct to just say i love you no matter what but then it's like now I got to explain it so that you do, you know, I don't know, like just that tension, right. like, right. I want to do that. I understand that, but yet I, I want to have this control. I don't know. Just, right. just to confess oh, it, that tension. It's the challenge of yeah. living, right? challenge. grace in real life. Yep. yep. That's in a tension. Thank God never resolves yeah. <laughs> of apparently, going. Apparently I, not in this life. I love you, period. <laughs> and yep. I want more for you. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And thank God for that. Yeah. So, well, Bill, thanks. Uh, Thanks for. Thank you for letting me share this book that meant so much to me. Yep. Yeah. And a great reminder, lots of stories. So if you like lots of stories, he tells lots of stories. (laughs) And I'll close on my page. A young girl grows up in a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. You'll have to get the book to finish that out. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, guys, again, thanks for the conversation. Um, In our last podcast, this is now preparation for our next book. Um, We had a little adapting going on based on our last conversation around uh, Peter Enz's book. Uh, Again, we encourage people, pick it up, read it, join in on that conversation if you haven't listened to it. Um, I think he did a great job of challenging us to take reading the Bible seriously. Um, but we struggled a little bit in our conversation around where where does he bring us in a helpful way? Where does he read bring uh, somebody who wants to read the Bible and engage it? Um, it? We didn't feel like there there was much help. Is that fair to fair yeah. to say, gentlemen? Yeah. yeah. Um, so we're picking up another book um, to discuss based on that, seeing yeah. if it may help us uh, by Dan Kimball. Uh, again, the author is Dan Kimball. How not to read the Bible. So how not to read the Bible. And then the subtitle, making sense of the anti, anti-women, anti-science, pro-violence, pro-slavery, and other crazy sounding parts of scripture. So he will touch in on what Peter Enns was willing yeah. to dive into and some of these other, like, so in the premise kind of came of a student of his, I think approached him who was really struggling with, Christianity, um, but not necessarily the church um, and scripture. And so engaging some of that. So uh, yeah, join us. Join us next month for how not to read the Bible. Pick up a copy, uh, read along with us. Otherwise, um, thanks for for listening in. Again, I'm Aaron. I'm Bill. I'm JB. I'm Darwin. And uh, we want to say God bless. Happy Reformation Day amidst the Halloween celebrations. Uh, God's grace and peace be with you.